Okay, so Isaiah chapter 33. This is a, a difficult chapter to understand, partly because the translation is uh, somewhat odd um, in places, and partly because if you don't get the context of this chapter, you won't get it at all. Uh, this, this chapter is talking uh, about the uh, situation that was to happen uh, at Hezekiah's time when Jerusalem was surrounded by Sennacherib's army and they're driven right back into, into Jerusalem. And then, amazingly, the angel of the Lord comes out and kills 185,000 of the soldiers and they're given this amazing, gracious salvation. But in chapter 1 of, of Isaiah you get this terrible description of how sinful Jerusalem were. The picture is that the Assyrian army has taken all the other cities of Judah, they're like a river that's overflowed its banks and come up to the very neck of Judah, and only Jerusalem is still free, uh, and that's about to fall, and yet Jerusalem has been um, seriously uh, cut down uh, by its own sins. And the whole of chapter 1 is talking about how Jerusalem is so sinful, and they are as Sodom, but they won't be judged as Sodom because of a very small righteous remnant. Going on then to chapter 8, it seems that that righteous remnant was basically Isaiah and his prophetess wife and his children, his various sons. And in Isaiah 8, he basically seems to say, well, I'm closing shop, I am now shutting down, um, and I'm just going to wait for the Lord because you are so sinful. And then this invasion came, and he says in verse 2, Be gracious unto us. And I want you to note how, <clears throat> how the pronouns change. We have waited for, for you. Be, be thou, may you be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Be gracious to us and save us, and be their strength every morning. Why the change in pronoun? Well, in one sense, he separated himself from Judah because of their weakness, but he still has to say that we need your grace and your salvation. So then this, I think, is how to deal, or one window into how to deal with difficult situations. When we are with other believers who we realize are very weak, I mean, in Isaiah 1, the, the body of believers are described there as totally sinful and like a prostitute, etc. How are we to cope with those kinds of people? Well, I think one way of dealing or trying to deal with it is to realize that I too, therefore we collectively, need God's grace and salvation desperately. The verses 3 and 4... Uh, the nations are going to be scattered, and I think that's referring to how the Assyrian army scattered from Jerusalem. It talks about nations in the plural because the Assyrians were not just people from the city of Assur, they were all kinds of uh, nations that are clubbed together in the confederacy that was known as the Assyrian army, like the, the Red Army from uh, Soviet times. They were not just Russians, they were Latvians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, the whole lot, uh, all the different republics of the Soviet Union were in that army. And it's the same with the Assyrian army. So Isaiah foresees that God is going to lift himself up and the nations, that is this army, is going to be scattered. 
Verse 4, and your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts. And I think that what that means is that there's this huge army outside Jerusalem. Angel comes out, kills 185,000 of them, and the rest run away. And the people of Jerusalem open the doors of the city and go running out and gather the spoil for themselves. That's what's being predicted here. And just... Um, just uh, remember that, because I think that we're going to come back to that idea uh, a little bit later. Just uh, in passing, um, one minute he's addressing God, verse 2, O Lord, be gracious unto us. Um, <clears throat> and then verse 4, And your spoil should be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. He's addressing the, uh, the Assyrians. Uh, and you see that throughout Isaiah and the prophets. The one minute they're addressing God, the next minute they're addressing themselves, then they're addressing um, the people of Israel, then they're addressing Israel's enemies, and then they're back to addressing God. That's one reason why it's somewhat hard to interpret. And just as a point in passing, I think that is a window into the spiritual mind of these prophets, that they were very close to God and were not far from God at all. They could pray as a word of God one moment and then address themselves to others the next, then back to God. God was continually before them. Now verse 5. God, the Lord, has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. But according to chapter 1, Zion, that is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, was filled with wickedness and injustice and a lack of righteousness. Isaiah 1 is very clear about that. But now he says God has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. So I would say that this is an example of where God can impute, can count righteousness to people. And as we marvel at how Isaiah could say that, having said what he said in chapter 1 about Zion and Jerusalem at that time, I think that we also are encouraged, therefore, and thereby to really believe that though our sins are as scarlet, they really can be, we can be as white as snow, because God imputes this righteousness to us. And that's the, the wonder of being in Christ, by baptism and by abiding in him, that we are seen by God as if we are the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 6, Strength of salvation uh, will be given. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Um, I think that's one of those bad bits of translation in this chapter, and I suggest that it really means that this, this strength of salvation that God is giving you, filling Zion with Jerusalem, uh, filling Zion with justice, that this is the greatest treasure that we could have. And so, verse 12, And the people shall be as the burnings of lime, as thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. Verse 14, The sinners in Zion are afraid, fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings. So I think that this is a recognition that although God is filling Zion with righteousness, he's counting them as righteous, Zion is full of sinners. And 
it would seem that fire was used as the, the, the medium, if you like, the method of destroying those Assyrians. That's typically how the angels work, because God makes his angels a flaming fire. And so Isaiah is saying, well, you sinners in Zion, when you see that fire coming down upon those 185,000 Gentile soldiers, you're going to be pretty scared. Because it really, by rights, should have consumed them. This goes again back to chapter 1, that Jerusalem was a Sodom, which was destroyed by fire, and yet it was not destroyed because of the righteous remnant that were there, and that is Isaiah. Now, I suggest, therefore, that in the last day, when Jesus comes, fire may also be used in this, in this same way. And it may be that there will also be the repentance of what is left of the, uh, the Jews that, that are in Israel, um, just before Christ comes. That is my picture of, of the chronology of things of the last day. Now, these sins listed in verse 15, despising the gain of oppression, shakes his hand from holding a bribe, stops his ears from he hearing of blood, shuts his eyes from seeing evil, this is exactly the sort of sins listed in chapter 1 as the reason for their condemnation. So, it's as if he's saying, look, you know, you've really come so close. When you saw that fire destroying the 185,000, when you will see that fire, who of you can really abide with that? And so it is that grace that is to lead them to repentance. Verse 16, uh, Vetch will be given him, his waters will be sure. I think that that may be a reference to um, the the water that was brought into Jerusalem at that time by, uh, by Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel and, and all that. Verse 17, your eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Well, Hezekiah's illness was at the same time as the invasion by Sennacherib or the surrounding of Jerusalem by Sennacherib because you remember that was in the 15th year, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, that that invasion came, and yet it was in the 14th year of his reign that he became sick. You can figure that out, because he was given 15 years to live after his sickness, and he reigned all up for 29 years. That means that the sickness was in the 14th year, which was the very same year of the invasion. So, at that time, he probably looked awful, and the promise is, your eyes shall see the king in his beauty, uh, and then goes on, and your eyes shall behold the land that is very far off. Now that has got to be an allusion to Moses, has it not? Who was given the vision of the promised land from far off. So, it was as if the message is, you have now got Canaan, the promised land, the kingdom of God in your sights. And I do believe that the kingdom of God could have been established at that time. That Hezekiah, or perhaps one of Isaiah's sons, according to the prophecies that were on them, uh, in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, to us a child is given, a son is born, that is the triumphant cry of the, of the father, Isaiah, with his wife, to us 
a child is born, a, a son is given, I, I do believe that that kingdom could have been established then. But it wasn't because of Judah's lack of repentance, because of Hezekiah's pride. It shows off for the Babylonian ambassadors and basically says, yeah, well, I've got a good life now for 15 years, so uh, I don't really care what's going to happen in the future. I'm just going to enjoy my 15 years. Uh, and, of course, a lack of attention to God's prophetic word through Isaiah. And that is, I think, how God works. He sets up huge possibilities which are not always lived up to by his people. And therefore, there have been all sorts of times when the kingdom of God could have come, but it didn't. And there's so many things that could have happened in our lives which don't. Even though God foreordained, Ephesians 2 verse 10, good works that we should walk in them, we don't always do them. Now, there's a big emphasis, verse 20, upon Jerusalem. Now, that's because all the other cities of Judah had fallen to the Assyrians. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, nor one of the stakes that shall ever be removed. This, again, is the language of eternity, and would seem to me to be implying that the kingdom of God could have come permanently then. Verse 21, but there the glorious Yahweh will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams. It was typical for cities such as Babylon and even especially the, the, the Egyptian city of No to have these broad rivers like moats and streams around them for defense. And are saying, in that day, we won't need anything like that because Yahweh will be our defense, because he will be there for us. Verse 22, he is our judge, king, he will save us, he will be our Jesus. And I think the implication is that Yahweh would be there, because there, verse 21, Yahweh will be all these things unto us. Similar situation in Ezekiel 40 to 48, where you've got this prophecy of the restored temple, which, which could have happened at the return of of the exiles, and it concludes by saying the name of the city will be called Yahweh Shema. Yahweh is there. And I think the idea, the vision was that God himself would live amongst them. Now that didn't happen in Hezekiah's time. They failed uh, to live up to the potential. And so in Ezekiel's time, it was possible at the return from exile. It could have happened again, but that didn't happen. They messed up again. And so again, there's been a deferment in fulfillment until the last day when finally Jesus shall come and Yahweh himself, it seems to me, shall live there with us. Now, these last couple of, well, verse 23 is, uh, is difficult, uh, talking about um, the prey of a great spoil being divided, the lame take the prey, and this talk about a ship being broken up. As I understand it, this is the picture of wreckers coming out to uh, grab all the wealth out of a ship that has broken up. The AV is totally confusing uh, how it translates here, but that, I think, is the picture. But even the lame take the prey. Now, this goes back to what we started off with, that when the 185,000 soldiers were slain and the rest of them ran away, the people of Jerusalem ran outside and, like locusts, the beginning of the chapter says, and gathered the, the prey. And so it finishes with, a, with another... Uh, metaphor saying that uh, actually the uh, people 
of Jerusalem, even the lame, will come out and, as it were, help themselves to the, the spoil of the great ship that has broken up. And incidentally, that's what you would call an inclusio, that in a lot of these chapters they are set up almost as a form of poetry, and a theme that begins the chapter also finishes the chapter, and that would make sense here. Um, but the, the wonder of it all for me is that last verse. The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. This was God's plan, as I said, to count Jerusalem righteous. And yet there is no mention here of their, of their repentance. This was God's plan, to bring this fire of destruction very near, very, very near to the walls of Jerusalem, so that the sinners in Zion would consider that that was, uh, that was me, uh, that should have been me, and it's, it's only by grace that it's not like that. And God just wanted to forgive them. You get the same in Jeremiah 33 about the new covenant, where God basically says, I will make you obedient. I will write my law upon your heart. I will make you obedient. Because I so want to have a covenant with you. I so want a relationship with you. So it's as if God is almost trying to force through his saving purpose with Israel, and, or with Judah here at Hezekiah's time. But they wanted none of it. They just wanted to get on like Hezekiah and think, yeah, well, I've got a few years to live now. Probably I'll be okay, 15 years, that's great, okay, fine, that's me done. And you know, that is our temptation. Instead of seeing the wonder of God's grace, the wonder of salvation by grace, and seeing the real possibilities that there are before us, both in his service, in practical ways, <clears throat> and ultimately in eternity, the eternal future that is before us. Instead, we look at the 15 years that we have in front of us now. And so then let's not be like them and let's see the wonder of all this that God <clears throat> is so thirsting for relationship with these sinful people in Jerusalem that he's counting them righteous as we saw in verse 5 filling Zion with justice and righteousness when they were not just although they were sinners within the walls of Zion saving them by grace not because of their righteousness but simply because that's what he wanted to do and that is what he is seeking to do with us forcing, almost seeking to force through his plan with us, because he so loves us. It's like a man who is too much in love with a woman, and he wants to force it through in some way. That is God with us. And really, it would have to be someone as uh, people like Judah, who, who were just absolutely, as he says in chapter 1, with the mentality of a prostitute, that I do not want this, I will not accept this, I just will go my own way. That is the mentality that, only that mentality that could not be saved. Now, I don't know if anyone's got any comments.